Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. Thank you for listening to another episode of Observations. Observations. what is a observation? I was really thinking over this weekend how I should, you know, I, I don't really introduce myself a whole lot. I, I, I assume that you know uh, who I am and when I mean by, when I say who I am, I mean what I've done and what I mean by what I say what I've done is uh, the career I've had and uh, I have been making comic books for the past 35 years. Um, I feel like I'm making comic books my whole life, but I'm making comic books professionally for 35 years. I was hired in the spring of 1987 at uh, uh, 18 years of age. I was published uh, in the fall of 1987 at, at 19 years of age. And uh, it's a really fun time. Really, really fun time to be making comics. And uh Seen a lot, been through multiple editors in chief. I've covered that on this uh, on this podcast before. Uh, seven editors in chief of Marvel. I've seen multiple heads of state at DC Comics. Um, I have watched multiple relaunches. I helped uh, launch a very important comic company called Image Comics, and uh, really set it up in its formative form. Formative years. It's most formative years, the years that generated by far the most electricity. And you guys tell me that. That's not me telling you that. I see you guys when I go to all these different shows. I've watched comic conventions go from venues that have thousands to venues that have hundreds of thousands. Literally. Literally, I have watched San Diego Comic Con become an absolute behemoth. I have watched New York Comic Con become an absolute behemoth. Uh, I have watched, uh, you know, the culture of comic conventions uh, where seemingly there's three to four every single month. Uh, What am I saying? Did I say every single month? Every single week. Three to four every single week. I have watched comic book material be adapted uh, in, in kind of a hokey format all the way to now where they are $200 million movies and people are uh, tripping over themselves to star in comic book feature films, huge productions. Um, We are at an apex, the likes of which I have not seen since I started collecting comics in 1974, 1975. And it's it's an incredible journey to have been on. When I see it through the eyes of my own kids of which how am I not supposed to see it through their eyes? Uh, they don't remember a time that comics weren't cool or comic book superheroes. That's uh, their, their friends. And, you know, uh, I'm talking uh, kids on the football squad, the lacrosse squad, the baseball team, the basketball squad. They all rock Marvel Comics t-shirts. They wear Captain America, Iron Man, Deadpool, Hulk, Wolverine, Batman. Uh, you know... People have pops on their desks. Uh, they buy high-end action figures, $200, $300, you know, expensive high-end action figures. Um, an entire high-end action figure line, uh, you know, uh, Hot Toys exists to make ridiculously limited uh, high-end, you know, reflections of what you see on screen. Uh, you, uh, screen. you can have a Hugh Jackman you know, doll. You can have a Robert Downey Jr. doll. You can have a doll that looks like, uh, 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 you know, 
Christian Bale, uh, Chris Hemsworth. I have watched this incredible, you know, surge, which started from the spinner racks of my youth and has surged now into the shelves of all the big box stores. I dare you to go to a Walmart, a Target, or a Best Buy and not find something comic book related like almost every third aisle um, or, or a certain amount of, of square footage. I mean, they've comic books are on food, they're on stationery, they're on, you know, school supplies, they're all over clothing, they're all over kids' clothing. And of course, then you've got the video games, the DVDs, the toys. It is just an amazing, wonderful world. I love being an author of material like this. I've been able to create a bunch of characters that have resonated for the better part of their existence, plus 30 plus years. Image Comics is coming on 30 plus years. It is um, without Image Comics, you did not get The Walking Dead, which is a phenomenon, uh, the likes of which pop culture has not seen in maybe since Star Wars. Uh, Walking Dead with its, I mean, if you're just going to base it on hours, outpaces almost everything in the culture. Uh, I mean, I mean, we are talking hundreds and hundreds of hours that that would put it uh, well past anything Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter related, but you know, obviously the Marvel pantheon and the Star Wars pantheon continue to grow at a rapid pace. So they, they they're probably going to either match, surpass, or keep in the hunt. But Walking Dead is a giant, big, honking deal. The reason Walking Dead wouldn't exist without Image Comics is it did is because the author of Walking Dead, Robert Kirkman, has expressed to me how much he was into Image Comics and how much Image Comics inspired him. So, so before he was taking his ideas and creations to the publisher to publish them on his way to being a partner, he was inspired by the comic books in the first place to create his own stuff. Nowadays, it could be manga that's inspiring you. I know my own son is obsessed with manga and anime, and he uh, collects Pokemon cards, and um, you know, it used to be Yu-Gi-Oh!, um, he, he, that's the kind of stuff that I see him. He gets inspired. He writes stories. He draws pictures. Uh, it could be video games that inspire you, but they, back in my day, you gotta understand that there were no video games. There were no video games. I am of the age where I saw the first video game Pong, I believe it is, uh, be introduced in pizza parlors as a desk, as a, as a tabletop game that you sat across from each other and you literally move that dial and, and slid your little um, digital platform across to catch the ball and sling it back. And as the speeds increased, it was on you to keep your paddle up with the velocity of the ball and the angle in order to, you know, beat your friend and be the champion of Pong. Okay. So Pong, that's how bad this, that's how far back this dinosaur goes. I didn't exactly crawl out of the tar pits, but some days it feels like it because of so much that I have seen. So when I have a raw observation, I am generally looking at it through a lens of many, many decades and growth and evolution, and it's exciting. I'm not one of those get off my lawn, don't show me something new. I love new things, but I also have a very specific taste that I generally follow. It's somewhere between anime and manga, which I discovered in my late teens, and the energy and excitement they put in their work, along with the boldness and the energy and the excitement of somebody like a Jack Kirby, who is the most important illustrator in the field of comic books that ever has existed, ever will exist, because he could stage and lay out and frame and move a page like no one else. 
Manga, when I look at manga, when I grab anime in anything off the shelf, something new that I haven't sampled to go along with all of my other thousands of, of manga, when I, go, when I go to the bookstore and I grab the manga, when I flip pages, sometimes I hear the ah, aye, ah, the yelling and the screaming that they do. And if you've watched most of the anime that I've watched, there is a lot of, you know, screaming. I mean, in Akira, this seminal, groundbreaking movie, Akira, I mean, it's Tetsuo Akira. Um, that is me imitating what I heard. Okay. That, that, and, and to this day, when I listen to anime, um, it's always lots of people. Ah, ah. Okay. Sorry if that just disturbed you. Um, to hear a 54-year-old man crow in that manner, but that's, I'm just imitating what is played back to me and what my kids are getting played back to them when they watch the multitude of anime that they do on their uh, TV. You'd say, Liefeld, your kids aren't young kids anymore. No, they're not. This is, they're still my kids, but when they get in their recliner seats and turn on the high def and they go into the Netflix library or the Hulu library and they watch the anime, um, I'm walking through the rooms generally. And so if it's, um, Attack on Titan or um, Demon Slayer or My Hero Academia, I am still experiencing the same sort of anime that I experienced when I was watching Gotcha Man, or as it was stripped here in the United States in the late 70s, Battle of the Planets. But I grew up on Ultraman, Giant Robo, Giant Robot, two different things. Um, you know, Johnny Sacco and the Giant Robot was um, appointment television for me. And uh, the cartoon Giant Robo which uh, uh, which mirrored that. Also, I, I grew up on Mazinger, the Shogun Warriors. All that stuff found its way into my house via black and white, very tiny, maybe 10-inch TV uh, that was black and white. Like I said, black and white on the UHF channel. In Southern California, the UHF channel in the afternoons and in the very early mornings catered to kids and it gave us the stuff that the main uh, American channels weren't giving us and that was uh, Simba the White Lion, which is absolutely, or is it Kimba? Which one is the, the one that predated the Lion King? Because when I saw the Lion King, I'm like, oh, somebody liked that cartoon that I liked growing up too. Um, and uh, 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 again, I got Mazinger, the Shogun Warriors, Gotcha Man, Battle of the Planets, um, Ultraman, Johnny Sacco, the Giant Robot, Giant Robo. So I got a lot. I got a lot of anime when I was a kid. And so that was a huge um, impact on me. I've, noticed, I've mentioned before that guys that I really favored uh, like a John Byrne growing up, who I think is one of the most commercial artists to ever do the gig and, and had a peak that lasted longer than most. Uh, he combined to me what I was seeing on UHF channels, anime, uh, with the Jack Kirby aesthetic, along with some Neil Adams rendering thrown in there. But that's the kind of stuff I like. But I like all sorts of new stuff. I've told you, I think Jorge Jimenez on Batman right now is the best Batman artist in the last 20 years. I think he blows the field away. He incorporates a manga anime approach to his style, his, his storytelling, his page design, big faces, big figures, very capable, very, it's coming out every more and more. He's kind of shedding, I think, more of the um, Western influences and going towards more Eastern influences. And, and that is why I buy it, to watch that evolution. Um, I saw his stuff on Super Sons and then Justice League and then on Batman, he became what I believe is the best most commercial comic book artists currently working in 2020, 2021. Those, for the last two years, he's dominated the field. Um, 
you know, and, and, and then when I look over at a guy like Pepe Larraz, who I thought was going in that same direction, I see the same influences mixed with in, in like a different stew, but they're still, they're pulling from anime and they're pulling from manga and they are shedding their Western influences. It's very interesting. That is the kind of stuff that we all grew up on. Eric Larson, myself, Todd McFarlane, we were incorporating uh, the anime and the manga into the work at, on the most commercial level early at the earliest. I think we, our generation really put that stuff forth. So again, being the guys who really merged, uh, and, 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 and as I saw, I saw John Byrne reflecting the anime that I was watching because I did not know about manga. But once I got into manga and Eric Larson was one of those guys who walked me around a table at WonderCon and said, you should grab this, you should grab this, you should grab Berserker, you should grab, um, you know, uh, Fist of North Star and started me on my path that I was already um, curious about. Uh, we then incorporated that on the, on the biggest stage and our books got exposed to the largest audience. And then it was kind of off to the races and some people got it, some people didn't. And um, I think we, we set the stage for guys like Joe Mad, who came on with a very overt Eastern man manga slash anime uh, influence. Again, manga refers to the comics, anime refers to the cartoons. Uh, that, that is how I have always understood it. That's how I approach it and repeat it. So uh, again, I am doing this show, constantly reviewing all of the stuff that's coming at, at such a rapid pace, trying to interpret it as best I can through the lens that I see it, and maybe sometimes forecast where I think it's going to go. Um, comics is an exciting medium, but m the most exciting it, it can be is when it is a launch pad for, you know, you know, multi-dimensional merchandising, uh, uh, you know, where again, I look to my left and my best example is all the X-Force Deadpool cable toys and merchandise that exists that is across, you know, uh, the entire spectrum of, of my shelves. It dominates it. And I love seeing this stuff in 3D. I love to see it in plastic. I love to see it, uh, uh as giant, statues that weigh 80 pounds like the new venom pool or 65 pounds like the new deadpool uh on the ferris wheel or these supersized action figures that are 12 16 inches and uh then the hot toys which are more of the dolls that i grew up with um <clears throat> and so it really is uh fun to watch something really launch and uh um <clears throat> you know the uh it's really interesting to watch something just completely blow up. And uh, the uh, the thing is that we now kind of, it's happening all the time. feels like it's happening all the time or it's the threat of it happening all the time is coming because so much is making it to the airwaves. Streaming has brought us so many more opportunities. Streaming has brought us, I mean, a, a volume that we had not yet experienced. I mean, remember just five years ago when we thought like Netflix was tearing it up. Netflix was 100% with their Marvel shows, rolling Daredevil into Jessica Jones, into Luke Cage, into Iron Fist, into Punisher, into, into The Defenders. And, and that seems like that was just, you know, just the beginning of so much more that was to come and did come and has come and is coming. And, and this morning, um, the most absolute amazing uh, gift landed in, in front of all our eyeballs, which was the trailer for Boba Fett, the book of Boba Fett. Why does this matter so much to me? 
I think I've done an entire podcast on Boba Fett, on Star Wars, on on what happened. Again, quickly glossing over eleven uh, uh, year old Rob Liefeld getting the next wave, second second slash third wave of Star Wars toys that advertised it. If you sent in four, five, three, I don't know, proof of purchases, so you had to cut up your um, package, take the figure out, and then in perforated lines, you cut down, cut out that coupon that in cardboard, send it through. And if you did that, they would send you your Boba Fett. And for weeks and weeks and weeks, I checked my mailbox every day. And then one day the, you know, it felt like a golden light shined out of my mailbox when I got home from school and in a white kind of toothpaste tube, cardboard tube wrapped in plastic was my Boba Fett figure. I held it. I I was so enamored and so excited. Boba Fett had appeared in the coolest, um, at part of the holiday special. Remember, I'm so old, I watched the Star Wars holiday special live. The one single time that it aired. I was in squat position. I had a bowl of popcorn. I had a soda pop. I was so enraptured for two hours on CBS to see that, you know, if Chewie would make it to his home world for life day with Mala and the rest. And did it look a little clunky? Sure it did, but it looks a lot worse now in high, high def. We saw it on fuzzy broadcast, you know, those mouse antennas mounted on maybe a 15-inch color TV, okay? So this was really, really crazy. And uh, and and uh, it was it was just amazing in, in, in that Star Wars was on my television, this thing I loved so much. I know there was dancing and it was vaudevillian and it looked kind of like the Carol Burnett show at times. I didn't care. I just lived for those live action cuts with Harrison and Luke. And, you know, maybe this is its own podcast now that I think of it. But the bottom line is Boba, Boba Fett was in the cartoon, the animated section. And it was a really cool style. It wasn't like the cookie cutter Saturday morning cartoons that I was used to. It was very stylistic, very, very interesting the interpretation of all the Star Wars characters. But what was undeniable was that Boba Fett came in on a brontosaurus-looking Loch Ness monster-type character. And we had already, we'd heard about him. I've, I've mentioned this, the sci-fi magazine, Starlog, had a single clip of the a standalone, you know, cell. Boba Fett was a big deal. Great name, Boba Fett. Great look, amazing look. A look that has given us an entire race now of Mandalorians that I'm not sure was the end game when he was created. But to kids like myself, we showed up, we saw Empire Strikes Back, and we uh, were left wanting. He's on screen, what is it, eight minutes? It's um, it's very brief, but he didn't kind of... The, 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 the disappointment with Boba Fett in Empire Strikes Back was the lack of screen time. The shot of all the bounty hunters was like, you know, wet, wet our appetite. And then seeing him in the slave one tracking them and then his interactions with them on, on Bespin cloud city. But, but it wasn't until good God almighty return of the Jedi. He just, I mean, come on, could you die any more like a bitch if you were, you know, 13, uh, I'm, I'm 15 years old. Okay. Nine, 12, 15 are my star Wars interaction ages. Okay. And by 15, I was, I, I was, oh my gosh, this character that I'd given my love to, my heart to, my soul to, got accidentally bumped off, you know, the barge and into the mouth of the Sarlacc. I mean, come on. That was totally disappointing. 
they had him in some comic book stories and they had him in the daily newspaper strips. And I mean, he was even drawn by uh, an illustrator as, as, as accomplished and, and lush and beautiful as Dave Stevens. But he just, he disappointed. Then the Mandalorian stuff started taking, taking flight and that was cool. And, 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 and they expanded it in the, in the, you know, uh, with, with Django and all that stuff. And, and that was really, really kind of piqued my interest. But when he came back in Mandalorian in the second season and we saw the full capacity and more of the savagery of, of what Boba Fett was capable now, that he had been freed, re, reunited with his armor, which, you know, that was a bit of a retrieval. And, 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 and now in that last end credit scene at the end of Mandalorian season two, where he goes into Jabba's palace and he takes his rightful place. Just amazing. Just fantastic. This trailer looks just out of this world, exciting. I think it's going to be a, a super treat. I, I have been jonesing, as I hope you have been, for more great Star Wars. I believe The Mandalorian is the best live-action interpretation of any of Disney's uh, intellectual properties that is on Disney+, Plus. that includes the Marvel stuff. I think the Star Wars stuff is a, is a cut above. I think it is done with the most style. It Maybe it's the most expensive. I'm not sure. I just know that I absolutely adore it, and I cannot believe this trailer was fantastic. It shows Boba Fett asserting his um, influence now that he has taken over Jabba's palace and is insert, uh, is is uh, kind of becoming the head of the over uh, of the of the underworld that exists in this realm of influence that he uh, that he is um, 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 moving through uh, in in this corner of the Star Wars realm. I think it's going to be outstanding. Um, I, 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 the book, the show looks amazing, but it finally looks like we're getting, and it's kind of like old man Boba Fett and I'm there for it. I'm there for all of it because he was such an absolute influence. I've told you time and time. And again, uh, if you listen to my, uh, making of Deadpool, uh, podcast, which is a five part, six part, I don't know, series that I put together to answer all your questions and go over all of the different evolution and, 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 and experience that ride as I experienced it. From the minute Deadpool happened, he was influenced by Boba Fett because Boba Fett was the first kind of mercenary bounty hunter that was on my radar. And as I've said, Tolliver, who was the gangster crime lord that Deadpool served under, was uh, influenced by Jabba the Hutt. And Cable, who was his original Mark, Deadpool's original Mark, when you meet him, was the Han Solo of the entire matter. And so this was completely Star Wars based. Me taking stuff that I loved from when I was, you know, 13, 15 and bringing it all the way onto my comic book pages in the books that I was creating in hopes of, you know, getting higher sales and currying greater favor with the fans. So Boba Fett is a big deal, and I just saw that, and I'm so excited. I'm so excited that we will, we will be able to talk about a uh, a weekly Boba Fett show. It will definitely um, kind of scratch that Mandalorian itch. I miss the Mandalorian. The Mandalorian was, in, in, as I've said, Mandalorian seasons one and two are kind of my favorite things of the last five years. I think the execution on both seasons is high. It's fantastic. I love those worlds. I've always been kind of super partial to Star Wars and I am an absolute first adopter. And if that makes me a bit of a snob, so be it. But um, the one thing that you can, you can't do is be nine years old in 1977. If you are not my age, you can be younger in 1977 and you can be older, but if you, you know, weren't born at that time, or if you were one or two or three or absent your memories, you're not there. You're not. And, and, and it's fun to have watched a world 
that um, Star Wars changed, and I believe Star Wars continues to change and advance and uh, and and evolve the culture around us. I think it is incredibly influenced. I'm just telling I'm telling you right now, no Boba Fett, no Deadpool. So there you go. Draw that line straight. Draw that straight line because it exists. Because I know it. Because I created Deadpool. I imagined him. I made him. And I know that he does not exist without the influence and the inspiration to make a bounty hunter. And that comes from my love of Boba Fett. So the book of Boba Fett cannot wait, cannot wait to be uh, completely enthralled by that world and all that they are going to share with us. So that was a great way to kick off uh, this week. Today, we have a comic book feud. Um, this is this 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 feud is really interesting. It's a little nasty. It involves your your favorite, um, you know, uh, 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 the uh, the 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 um, what do you call it? The uh, I, I received the. It involves your favorite kind of comic book commander in chief. Stan the Man Lee. And it's a little salty. This one is a little salty. Fair warning. Um, I, I will not be pulling the punches, but here's the deal. On this particular comic book feud, these dudes are dead, okay? These dudes are totally, um, completely, they're dead. So so I have tried to piece together some of the best um uh, iterations of this that I possibly can to share to you. And what I mean by iterations, I mean the actual, um, you know, again, bringing the receipts so often. And if you ask, why did I do this podcast in the first place? Why did I? It, well, it was partially the loneliness of the pandemic, which really cut off interaction with so many other people in a way that I had never experienced in my life. And my son being sweet enough to go, dad, I'll go, I'll go, I'll get you this blue Yeti mic. And you can talk into it. And this is how you can do a podcast. And, and my son was very sweet in helping me set up this endeavor. And you guys have um, thankfully uh, come along for the ride, listened, hopefully enjoyed um, what, what, I, what I've had to share with you. And I, I just do love <laughs> sharing all of this with you guys. It is so ridiculously intense and crazy sometimes. And these, um, these feuds are no exception. These feuds are absolutely... No exception to the rule of how absolutely um, crazy the comic book world is and maybe a, 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 a part of it that you've, you've never heard of. And I try and kind of bring you guys the receipts. And by bringing you the receipts, what I am saying to you is that I am bringing you time-stamped events, so much of what goes on in comic books. The internet, so, so you guys go to the internet and you look at a lot of stuff and so much of it, as I've shared with you, is... Um, is poorly, uh, so much of what you see on the internet is, is poorly cultivated and it is not policed at all. And there are lies and there are deceptions and there are all manner of misinformation out there masquerading as facts. I can't police it either. What I can bring to you are time-stamped interactions, quotes, interviews, uh, that I can put a date on, put an author on, um, cultivated from blogs, magazines, interviews, Word of mouth, some of these guys have told me stuff to my face. Okay, so I, I carry that and I share that with you. And that is some of what we are going to um, share today. So I am going to read to you, uh, well, so I should set the stage on this feud. Stan Lee, 
is one of the participants and Wally Wood. Whoa, I'm getting ahead of myself. Who is Wally Wood? Let's, let's talk about Wally Wood. When I got into comics, Wally Wood was making Justice Society of America comics. DC Comics had introduced, reintroduced the Justice Society characters who were on Earth 2, which if you've read my multiverse or listened to my multiverse podcasts, I have covered two multiverse podcasts which cover how DC dealt with their multiverse with Earth 1, Earth 2, Earth 3, you know, um, different slices of multi multiversity. And and the, the World War II era, the World War II era uh uh the world war ii era dc comic superheroes had been sequestered on, on a planet called earth 2 that's how you could explain that some like they had an older superman that fought in world war ii uh this is how they explain that there is uh <clears throat> this is this is um this is how uh they explain uh, 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 you know, different iterations, that there's a different Flash, a different Green Lantern, a different Hawkman. They had brought back the Justice um, Society of America and they did it in in the pages of a book called All-Star Comics. All-Star Comics Presents. At, at first, the new Justice Society was called the Super Squad. It even says on this cover. Featuring All-Star Comics Presents, the Super Squad, featuring the Justice Society of America. Woo! And on the cover where they brought them back, Maybe you were too tough for the Justice Society, says the new younger versions of these characters. Power Girl, who is kind of a, makes her debut and she is a Earth 2 version of Supergirl. The Earth 2 version of Robin is also running at us. He is in an alternate uh, Robin costume. And then there's the Star Spangled Kid. And he's kind of a holdover from another time, another place. So, and they are coming at you over the fallen figures of the Earth 2 Flash, the older Flash, the older Earth 2 Green Lantern, Dr. Fate, and Wildcat. And, and Star-Spangled Kid is saying, maybe you were too tough for the Justice Society, but mister, now you've got to fight the Super Squad. Well, Wally Wood was the artist on these, and, and if he wasn't drawing and penciling them, he was also inking them over guys like Keith Giffen. Wally Wood is a very accomplished uh, mega-talent that died way too soon, um, who made his mark all over comic books. Uh... Many people, if you say Wally Wood, they think of, they will first and foremost think of his EC Comics, uh, uh, more sci-fi comic book um, uh, 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 oriented work, horror work. Some people think of him on Mad Magazine, where he did tons of work and was their most featured, favored participant in the fifties. In the, in, you know, I mean, I mean, uh, Wally really was cranking way before a Marvel Comics came into view and came into focus. His work is clean. It is polished. If you were to look at it, you would see how clean, polished. He was um, very meticulous in his feathering. He always, um, he did great lighting. Um, uh, uh, you know, he knew how to cast shadows all over faces, chiaroscuro lighting. He was one of the first guys that I saw do um, lots of different um, mood lighting on faces, on figures. And, uh, you know, but but his he's a very pretty artist. Everyone is very attractive. Everyone is very pretty. Everyone is very um. There, there's there's not a lot of indecision in his work. It's very when I say clean, the brush the brush line and the ink line are very smooth. Um, he is really uh a uh, 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 again a very pretty artist. To my generation, he means the Thunder Agents. He means this lap stint on All Star. Uh, you know, the all-star comics featuring the Super Squad, Justice Society. Uh, 
He inked over Jack Kirby, okay? He inked over Jack Kirby on Challengers of the Unknown. He inked over uh, he inked over uh, Jack Kirby uh, and collaborated with him uh, several times, but m- most famously, and again, uh, Kirby loved, you know, loved, absolutely loved working alongside him, actually would, would ask him to, to ink over him because I think Jack really liked the end result. Um, they did the Sky Masters script, Sky Masters of the Space Force. And um, so, so Wally Wood was somebody who had his fingers in a lot of different pies. The, the people who write and, and, and talk about him during that period say how prolific he was, how, how, um, how much work he took on, how much work he delivered. Uh, he was incredibly uh, uh, professional until he wasn't, in, in, in some cases, like many artists, and I can speak to this too, hot-headed, maybe uh, 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 drew a line in the sand, firmly stuck to it. But we don't talk about him unless he was as talented as he was. And to many people, so I've said Sky Masters, I've said Challenger of the Unknown, I've mentioned his EC work, um, EC Comics uh, library of work, of which there are many volumes of which you'll find his work all over the place, his Mad Magazine, more of his humor work. But to many people, he's Daredevil. I mentioned the Thunder Agents, which come post-Daredevil, but, but many people, he is, you know, Daredevil. Um, you know, um, the, 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 the thing with his period on Daredevil, this is where we're going to set the stage for this feud and how we're going to get into this feud. We're going to back into this feud today. Okay. We're going to absolutely back into, uh, the feud and, uh, you know, um, the, the the thing with Stan Lee that you have to remember, we, we need to kind of familiar, familiarize ourselves with where Stan Lee is during this period. Um, uh, uh, and and um, the, 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 the thing is that Stan was not just the voice of Marvel and writing and having his name on all these books as a writer, but, um, you know, the, the, the thing is he had family connections to to the to to the you know Marvel Marvel Comics itself he he uh, um, he was not just he had a position at the seat of power and he had um, you know family connections that were that were that were you know absolutely uh, that, that, that were absolutely giving him a greater power uh, uh, power than, than maybe anybody ever had in in the comics industry. Um, you know, he is, he came in as Stanley Lieberman. I'm sure many of you know that he shortened it to the pseudonym of Stanley, which we know him best and, and foremost as. Um, but uh, he had a great sphere of influence and power at, uh, at, at, at Marvel comics. So when, when he hired you, he wasn't just your editor or your publisher at that, at that point, he had very deep, deep, um, you know, deep ties into, into the, uh, you know, uh, into the, into the, into the company, Martin Goodman, uh, you know, was married to Stan's uh, 
Stan's cousin. Okay. And, uh, you know, so Stan Lee's cousin, Gene, is Martin Goodman's wife. And, and so, so Martin Goodman is, uh, you know, heading up timely, which will eventually shift to Marvel. But this is weighing down the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the weight of our feud, but you have to understand the power that, that Stan wielded. And that is why so many people, um, who, who, who messed with Stan, um, came out on the other end of it because, uh, Stan, um, you know, was, was, had some family connections. Martin Goodman wanted Stan to create a successful, you know, rival to Julie Schwartz's DC Comics at the time, Justice League of America. And he made, uh, he asked Stan to come up with, with, you know, a rival, which is where we got Fantastic Four. We get so much of the great Lee Kirby stuff. But, you know, along the way, uh, as these books are more and more successful, and we're talking Thor, Iron Man, you know, uh, uh, X-Men, Fantastic Four, early X-Men, Avengers, obviously Spider-Man with Ditko. This is, uh, this is the kind of stuff that gave Stan more power, more success. Uh, by 1970, uh, uh, by, I think it's 1972, uh, Martin Goodman would name Stan, not just EIC, but publisher. So, so, uh, you know, th this is, uh, Stan had a long tenured career in comic books between Timely and the transition to Marvel and all of their success. He had family connections. So, so he was not just a run-of-the-mill guy, a run-of-the-mill employee. He was really ensconced in, 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 in the blood of what was Marvel Comics. So they launch a book. It's called Daredevil. It's not as successful as, as, as they would... Um, as, as they were, were hoping, because the fans see Daredevil as kind of a secondary Spider-Man guy. I know I did, and I came to Daredevil, Daredevil in the 70s, right when he was going bi-monthly, only six months, six titles a year. He had gone, they'd cut him back from 12 to 6. Frank Miller is the one that saved that, came on the, on the book, made it a top seller, put it back on monthly rotation, and made it one, the number one or number two book at Marvel any given month, and transformed Marvel. And, uh, you know, um, really, really, uh, made Daredevil the modern day Daredevil that we know today. But Wally Wood, this man I'm talking of, whom you may have never heard of, but what a great name, rolls right out of the tongue, Wally Wood, Wally Wood, Wally Wood, like Wally World. Uh, Wally Wood, uh, uh, was, was essential in, in, in really steering Daredevil at an early, early, early period. He, so Daredevil first appears in 19, you know, 64. Stanley and Bill Everett, Bill Everett, who was also a part of the creation of Submariner, Prince Namor, they combined, as Stan would combine with so many influential people, to give you uh, Daredevil. And uh, Daredevil was not terribly hitting the mark for them. Artistically, the books weren't where Stan had hoped they'd be in terms of, when I mean artistically, I don't mean just the art, I mean the entire artistic representation, writing, uh, presentation. Um, the, uh, the comic book character had de debuted, again, as I said, in 1964, alongside Bill Everett. And he is not the all red from head to toe character that we know now. He is partially, it's like the red part of his 
costume is like a tank top and trunks uh, connected by a belt, and it has his Daredevil D on the the DD on the on the chest. But he's otherwise he's bright yellow and has red boots, red 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 gloves. But he's not the Daredevil that you know today. And uh, you know there's been suggestions that kept, that Jack Kirby was somehow involved in the design of this original uh, Daredevil um, and comic historian and also very best friend and and kind of family curator for the Kirby estate. Mark Evanier has suggested uh, that Kirby was involved, but but that that is for our purposes that's that's hearsay. Um, the 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 character. Uh, did not exactly take 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 off. Like I said, it was not. It, uh, it, it struggled out of the gate to find the same identity, and it was seen as kind of the not as cool version of uh, Spider-Man. And, and if you look up, kind of again, what we talk about, the internet is not well policed. The the kind of because of the success of Marvel, you're not going to read as much how the character struggled. Now you're just going to look up and see that the character was so successful. But there have been times in Daredevil's history that he he really, really struggled. And and this is one of those times. So I'm going to share with you uh, what some great peers uh, in the comics industry had to say about recently, as, as recent as five, six years ago, about Wally Wood in regards to Daredevil. He comes on Daredevil with issue five. And starts to find his way because they have lost two creative teams by that. Bill Everett has left, and Joe Orlando, who followed Bill Everett, has left. And uh, and I'm telling you right now that the book really found its footing, found maybe its broad appeal, and there were aspects uh, that Wally Wood brought to Daredevil that suddenly transformed him from being kind of a second-rate Spider-Man. Because Spider-Man had webs and could swing between buildings. Daredevil, you know, he's blind, and 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 he's you know on the rooftops and he's enforcing, you know, you know, crime, but he's kind of on every level, not as cool as Spider-Man. It never has been. Even when Frank Miller was making him the top draw in comics based on his artistic execution of the character and building out his world and introducing characters like Elektra and Stick and the Hand, um, you know, he didn't overtake Spider-Man in the populace as Marvel's most popular character. He was just their best-selling book. He went on a run. Everyone had to be reading Daredevil because Frank at the helm had transformed it so radically. But the first person to transform it and to add to him is is Wally Wood. Now, when the first Netflix show came out, people were really, uh, other professionals were calling Marvel out for not giving Wally Wood proper credit on the show. Roy Thomas, who followed Stan Lee in the 70s to become the editor-in-chief and really the creative guiding force for almost a decade. Uh, he had learned to understand. He took the helm. He was, Roy is a huge accomplished writer uh, taking over uh, Avengers, uh, Conan. Because of Roy, we got Star Wars. Because of Roy, we got Conan. Because of Roy, we got some seminal Avengers, uh, the Kree Scroll War. Uh, Roy was an essential part of uh, Marvel's transition from 60s to 70s and the appeal. And under Roy, we got, you know, Luke Cage, Power Man, Iron Fist. Roy, Roy was very much the guiding force at the company. He is stated in 2015, Wally Wood's contributions to Daredevil, particularly the look of the character, were crucial to his eventual early success, even if he did not technically co-create 
Daredevil. I believe that he deserves screen mention alongside Stan Lee and Bill Everett. Nobody has ever really been able to or dared try improve on the costume that Wood designed 50 years ago. This is a great uh, take. Daredevil, by and large, uh, by and large aside from a few off-ramps uh, where they kind of gave him armor, that, that costume is the same. That costume has stood the test of time. It's very simple. Simple always kind of really triumphs simplicity. Uh, Daredevil is truer to his costume, is as true to his costume as Batman and Superman. Uh, Jerry Conway, who created The Punisher, uh, just all sorts of uh, accomplishments, uh, wrote some Daredevils, stated in 2015, of course Wally Wood deserves credit on the Netflix show and on all Daredevil TV film and licensing. Wally Wood was instrumental in initiating and designing Daredevil's iconic red costume. He is essential to any list of Daredevil creators. Jim Steranko, uber illustrator, influencer of the late 60s, early 70s. His shield work and his Captain America work are like hollowed works. He did all of the original production design, art, art, matte paintings, um, for Raiders of the Lost Ark, you can Google those. Jim Steranko, Raiders of the Lost Ark, they're magnificent. He is adored, still among us. Uh, Wally Wood transfigured Daredevil from a mundane hero into a major contender. Wally Wood put the devil into Daredevil by replacing the original saffron yellow costume with one of satanic scarlet. He changed the character from a sideshow acrobat into a creature of the night. Uh... You know, and uh, the thing is that uh, in regards, Howard Shaken is on uh, is on track to 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 uh, contribute here as well as to Wally Wood's credit. And 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 Howard Shaken, American Flag, Cody Starbuck drew the original Star Wars movie adaptation that saved Marvel Comics. Went on to create one of the greatest independent comic books of all time in American Flag. Uh, did seminal runs at DC on the Shadow, Black Hawk. He is a ma ma massive, massive talent. I've spoken of him often. He says, I cannot imagine any moral circumstance in which Wally Wood's contribution to Daredevil remains unacknowledged. The red costume, the first set of Nemesis, the visual key to the character's radar sense, and so many other elements that are intrinsic to the franchise derived from his stint on the book in no way, uh, this in no way diminishes Bill Everett to acknowledge Wallace Wally Wood's participation in the development of the character that we recognize today. Uh, so so um, Bob Shrek, the last guy I'll read here, he is a editor uh, at Dark Horse, Oni, and DC Comics, says, omitting Wally Wood's contribution to the Daredevil character uh, that is Daredevil is like either, is like leaving Siegel and Schuster off the opening credits of the Superman film. So these are, this is, comic book creators of six years ago going on record publicly stating their overt uh, support for the influence that this gentleman I'm discussing with you today, Wally Wood, uh, and, 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 and his profound. So he turned the character, he turned the, the, the Wally Wood on the book, gave him the entire head-to-toe red costume. The radar sense, as we've seen it in comics with the circles, the visual representation of that, it had been said in the comic books that he could hear and that he could smell, but it had not been visualized. Wally did that. Um, this is the most interesting thing I'm going to share with you because this really uh, brings to light now the feud. 
So Wally Wood follows. He is the third guy in, in, in five issues. Bill Everett, Joe Orlando have had cracks at the bat. Issues one, two, three, four. Wally Wood comes on, okay? And uh, very shortly uh, makes his impact known. And Daredevil number seven, where Daredevil fights Submariner, who has come to hire the law firm of Murdoch, uh, of Matt, Matt, Matt Murdoch and Foggy Nelson to represent him as he is going to sue mankind. And they tell him, well, who are you suing? Because, you know, there's nobody to sue here. Mankind isn't somebody you can sue. It's a seminal issue where, whereupon while Submariner, Sub, Submariner, Prince Namor is away, seeking their, the, the assistance of, the, of, of Daredevil's true civilian identity, which is Matt Murdock and his partner Foggy Nelson and their, you know, law firm. While Namor is away, you know, underseas, there's a revolt, there's a, re- uh, uh, there's a uh, revolution, there's a challenge to his throne. Uh, and, and, in, and, and, you know, nobody has a shorter temper other than Wolverine, than Prince Namor. Prince Namor was the first hot-tempered guy and, uh, in comics. And, and so eventually he battles Daredevil, but Daredevil's totally overmatched. And the reader knows this. Daredevil has no superpowers. Namor can throw a tank at you. He's got massive super strength, speed, flight, and a terrible temper. And um, Daredevil fights him to the point of passing out in, in order to, to, to you know, thwart him. And it was a first for its time, a huge kind of wow. And uh, the cover, the interiors, the entire execution of the story is kind of uh, seen as a really pivotal turning point that got people chattering about Daredevil, drew more more readers, more audience, more buzz, for sure more buzz, and set Daredevil on the course to becoming the character that we all know and love today. So uh, Stan and Wally were, were battling it out because Wally's road to Daredevil went through, again, EC Comics, Mad Comics, some DC Comics work. And at Marvel, he was actually getting paid the least amount that he'd been getting paid because Mad Magazine adored Wally Wood and gave him key uh, featured um, showcases all the time in their magazine and they would pay him, if you can believe this, in the 50s, you know, $200 a page, which is astounding. Apparently, for somewhere between $45 and $50 a page, he would go on to now, and that was high for Marvel, high. That was a high rate for anybody working at Marvel at the time. He would go on to now kind of be the guy that Stan has chosen to hopefully hold Daredevil together not knowing that he would make Daredevil even more exciting than it had ever possibly been. Changing the look, introducing other different factions, he introduced different characters, Stiltman, started building out the 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 started building out the the uh the Rogues Gallery. And uh but he leaves. He and Stan have a falling out because according to Wally in his woods, in his <laughs> in his woods, in his woods, I'm Elma J. Fudd, in Wally Woods Woods, uh uh, in, 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 in Wally's words, I will read to them, read them from an interview that he gave to Mark Evanier, who I've already mentioned was a dear, uh, Jack started out as Jack Kirby's assistant was by his side in thousand Oaks in the seventies while the fourth world commandee demon OMAC his captain America run all of that stuff happened. Uh, he interviews, uh, Mark has gone since gone on to become a producer of, Animation, the Garfield cartoon, uh, accomplished writer, producer. Uh, he sat down with Wally Wood and Wally Wood, in his own words, I'll, I'll sh- you'll hear what he has to say about Stan. He believed Stan was not paying him for writing the book when, in fact, Wally was writing the book. 
And as is the case with Steve Ditko and eventually Jack Kirby and others that had the same complaint with Stan. It is kind of the running kind of thing that Stan is taking more credit than he deserves, according to Jack Kirby, according to Steve Ditko, according to Wally Wood, that they all eventually leave him. And Wally almost had Jack leaving, I mean, literally like six years before he would eventually leave, but Jack at the last minute decided he would not leave. But Wally does leave shortly thereafter, shortly in between Daredevil 10 and 11. I'm going to read you what saw print in several different blurbs. Okay, but before I do that, I should actually, just to show you how exciting, how excited Marvel Comics was to um, to welcome Wally Wood. Again, rest in peace, Wally. Um, just, to, just to show you how excited they were to welcome Wally Wood, okay, to, 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 to the book. Um, you know, uh, on the cover, on the cover of Daredevil number five, it says, after showing that he's going to be fighting the mysterious masked matador, it says, under the brilliant artistic, this is a blurb, this is a blurb on the cover, under the, art, under the brilliant artistic craftsmanship of famous illustrator and then bigger font, Wally Wood, Daredevil reaches new heights of glory. So Stan was like, I got Wally Wood. Wally Wood's not doing work for DC. He's not wor doing work for EC. He's not doing his, his famous work for Mad Magazine. He is with me now. He is doing Daredevil. And on that blurb, under the brilliant artistic craftsmanship of famous illustrator, Wally Wood, Daredevil reaches new heights of glory. So Stan was all in on this approach. But... Wally is struggling the entire time believing that he is the one writing these stories and Stan is taking credit. This is an accusation that he will hurl. I will read it to you verbatim from his own words. Um, and, uh, and, and you know, what I'm going to read to you is stuff that appeared in blurbs post-Wally Wood. So I've already given you comic book fans that spoke up, not comic book fans, comic book professionals, accomplished professionals that spoke up on Wally Wood's defense when the Netflix movie failed to credit him, Netflix series. After Wally leaves, uh, Stan publishes this blurb. So this is kind of public. This, this feud gets, when I said it's salty, now that Wally got the writing out of his system, he left it for poor Stan to finish next issue. Can our leader do it? That'll be the real mystery. But while you're waiting, see if you can find the clue we planted showing you who the organizer is. It'll all come out in the wash next issue when Stan wraps it up. See you then. You would call this a form of gaslighting. Um, he is, uh, with these blurbs, he is kind of dissing, humiliating, insulting, and, uh, you know, kind of undercutting Wally Wood. I mean... Now that Wally got the writing out of his system, because Wally only got a writing credit on issue 10, and according to Wally, who gives this interview to Mark Evanier, Stan would not hire him to do anything other than inking ever again. It was kind of like Stan. Remember I told you Stan had a lot of power. He is semi-punitive um, to Wally post this, you know, demand to write the issue of which then, you know, Wally doesn't like how it's handled and he leaves and then Stan before the book goes to press, puts this blurb. Now let's go to the letters column. The letters column was where a lot of um, talking to the fan would take place from the publishing. And here's another blurb. 
in the letters column. That blurb is at the end of the comment, the one that I just wrote you about now that Wally's got the writing out of the system, he's left it to poor Stan to finish. Stan is the constant on Fantastic Four, on Avengers, on Iron Man, on Spider-Man, on, on X-Men, Thor, Hulk. So Stan's the guy, you see. So if Stan is painting a, 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 you know, to the fans of that time, poor Stan, you're like, what's going on? If you, like, is there is there problems with Wally and Stan? It's definitely implied. Here in the letters column, well, if you've ever seen a more complicated, mixed-up, madcap mystery yarn than this one, you've got us, all caps, us, beat by a mile. And now, here's the payoff. Wonderful Wally decided he doesn't have time to write the conclusion to the next issue. And he's forgotten most of the answers that we need. So sorrowful Stan has inherited the job of trying the whole yarn together, of tying the whole yarn together and finding a way to make it all come at you, come out in the wash. And you think you've got troubles? Anyway, let's take a breather as we meander through our Mary Marvel mailbag. So from the end of the issue blurb to the top of the letters column, I'm going to read this again. Well, if you've ever seen a more complicated, mixed up, madcap mystery yarn than this one, you've got us, again, us is on caps, beat by a mile. And now here's the payoff. Wonderful Wally decided he doesn't have time to write the conclusion to the next issue. And he's forgotten most of the answers we'll be needing. So sorrowful Stan has inherited the job of trying to tie the whole yarn together and finding a way to make it come out in the wash. And you think you've got trouble. So again, more gaslighting, more public feuding. Stan is taking this feud, this, this, these insults, um, and undercutting Wally publicly to the fan. To, to, I mean, you are holding issue 10 in your hands and this is what you are reading. So, they end the letter column. That's how they begin it. Remember now, and these are blurbs that you understand are from the publisher because they're highlighted in yellow. Remember now, next issue will either be one of Marvel's moments of triumph or another floppy fall on our foolish faces. I mean, <laughs> this is this is hostile. Remember, next issue will be one of our Marvel one of our Marvel moments of triumph or another floppy fall on our foolish faces. It's all up to Stan. Can he figure out a way to end this yarn? Can he tie all the clues together? Will he ever talk to Wally Wood again? Yes, I am reading this from the comic. Will he ever talk to Wally Wood again? We have a hunch you're in for a mess of surprises. But it won't mean a thing unless you show up. Face front. Join inimitable Irving Forbush as he, murver, as he murmurs, Make mine marvel. Keep well and stay happy and don't be mad at us. We are doing our best. See you next issue. Nuff said. Nuff said is Stan's moniker. Are we in a feud? I think we are. I think this feud is as public as any feud. This isn't taking the place in the comics journal or in the comics interview or in Amazing Heroes. This is in the pages of Marvel Comics. Issue 11. Issue 11. Wally Wood wrote two, part one of this two-parter. Just This is the first page of page 11. Wally Wood wrote part one of this two-parter last ish just for a lark insult. But now it's up to sly old Stan to put all the pieces together and make it come out. Okay. In the end, can he do it? Let's see for yourselves. So here's the deal. And I'm sure if I had gone up to Stan, even in his nineties and said, Stan, what was that about? He's like, Oh, I was just kidding. I mean, he would, I think he would play it off and that's fine. Cause who wants to relitigate something that happened, you know, 50 years prior. Um, but this was hostile. And um, and uh, 
there is a blurb that I did not read from issue 11 that says, Two great surprises await you in this offbeat issue. One, this is Daredevil's first real mystery thriller, complete with a zillion suspects, countless clues, and perplexing plot twists. Two, Wally Wood has always wanted to try his hand at writing, a story as well as drawing it, and big-hearted Stan, who needed the rest anyway, said, okay, what follows next is anyone's guess. You may like it or not, but you can be sure of this. It's going to be different. That is the blurb on page 10 that starts it all. So Stan kind of pulling the rug out of Wally's, uh, you know, out from under Wally, undercutting him right from the get-go, kind of implying that this has been forced upon him. He doesn't like it. So this is truly, truly, truly a very gaslit um, situation. The issues that followed had John Stan to, to make up for Wally's departure after they had their falling out over credit and pay. Jack Kirby did the layouts. Uh, John Romita Sr. was brought in to do the finishes, and then that opened the door for John Romita Sr. to begin his career in superheroes with Marvel, Marvel superheroes with Daredevil, and eventually Spider-Man and Daredevil team up in the pages of Daredevil. Some saw it as a tryout, given that Ditko was threatening to leave. Johnny Romita Sr. then transitions from Daredevil to Spider-Man. So there's, there's a lot of history being made here. John Romita Sr. coming in to finish over Jack Kirby's layouts which apparently he didn't like a weekend to keep the book going. Uh, the entire, so what is the source of the feud? We are seeing this, maybe this feud carried all the way to the lack of credits. That is a maybe, I do not know that for a fact. But the bottom line was Wally Wood believed um, that he was uh, being uh, undercut by uh uh, you know, by Stan, that Stan was uh, purposely uh, not allowing him to do the stories that he wanted or not to, or he was not giving him the credit uh, that he deserved. So again, while he came on the, on board, he gave the visual representation of the, uh, of, of his, of his, you know, radar sense and uh, which made it infinitely more interesting and has been repeated and imitated ever since. Uh, he he just across the board made Daredevil more exciting, better stories, solidified it. This is a story. This is this is a book that out of the gates was seen as kind of a you know where does this fit in Marvel? What what this guy has no powers? What he can hear and and he can he can he can hear and he can. Um, smell and he has heightened senses but he really doesn't have any superpowers he has this billy club he, he's in the bright yellow red costume it's a little garish wally comes and puts his imprimatur on this immediately it is it is uh you know he he starts asserting himself and again wally is happy to uh you know, at this point, because he's kind of tired with EC Comics and Mad Comics, some say that he had a falling out, but he was immediately, again, look at the blurb they gave him. I read it to you. He, he got his own, like, ba basically, the book is saved. Wally Wood is here. That's my that's my read of that blurb. Like, you know, famous illustrator Wally Wood has arrived. Um. So, uh, again, issue seven, The Submariner, it's, it's, it's seen as one of the most important early Marvel comics because of the characterization because of the uh, be, be, because of 
of of the fact that Daredevil would would literally you know you know fight himself to the point of being you know electrocuted and and passed out in his in his tussle with with uh with Namor and uh and 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 uh would was obviously hearing that that this stuff was well well received that his Daredevil was picking up I mean and he also got to realize there's a time where all these guys lived in in New York Kirby Ditko uh you know Wally they're all you know in the city coming in to see Stan Marvel staffers on a regular basis um Wally believed that he was being taken advantage of. Uh, he believed that the Marvel method of Stan, which according to Jack Kirby, he's like, hey, let's do something in space. And Jack will give you the Silver Surfer and Galactus and all of that mythology. And then Stan would dialogue it and get co-creator credit for it. And then in in, in somebody like Jack's in, instance where he dies in 1994 and isn't alive to really do the interviews and assert his dominance and his influence and how much he brought to the table stan is seen as by many i have met people who think stanley wrote and drew these comics again the internet is irresponsible and when you own and, and 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 there are people who literally think he wrote and drew these the method that i used when i was working at marvel on the new mutants is i provided the story i provided the art i created the characters the conflict the drama the villains the consequences the twists, the turns, the the, the 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 interpersonal relationships, those dynamics. And then what I did is I passed it off per my notes, per my instructions to have them dialogued. I was the author of the work. I would have someone script it. I just did a X-Force 30th anniversary. I kept the details of this to myself. And I hid the last five, six pages. I did not want to get um, exposed those. When it was all done, Towards the middle, I gave an extensive outline of, to my editor and to Marvel and then to my chosen scripter who I enjoy working with. I, I love his dialoguing. is Chad Bowers. And when I was finished, I went back through with copious notes and, and, and sent many emails detailing and giving the understanding of what these crazy wild ideas are so that he would be able to, to communicate through the dialogue. Perhaps Stan Lee was doing Chad Bowers' job over Jack and, Stan, and Steve. And, and Wally Wood. But we won't know. Stan has denied it. He says that he formulated these stories, except the Marvel method was a phone call or a meeting in Stan's office, which is harder to defend and create actual evidence of. There are people like John Romita Sr. who will come to Stan's defense and say the way Stan tells it is the way that it happens, except he wasn't in the room where many of it happened at the beginnings. John Romita Sr. was not in the room where Hulk happened, the Fantastic Four happened, Avengers happened, X-Men happened, etc. Okay? Um, Wally Wood believes he was being taken care of. He believes the Marvel method that was used by Stan that worked well for some artists was not a good fit for him being Wally Wood. He felt he was doing at the very least half of Stan's job and not getting the credit, not getting the credit as the writer and not the payment. Uh, there is a editorial in the Woodwork Gazette that Wally Wood wrote uh, 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 that Stan Lee um, came up with two surefire ideas. And... Uh, First one was, why not let artists write the stories as well as draw them? And the second one was, always sign your name real big at the top. This is Wally Wood, tongue-in-cheek, speaking of the two big ideas he believed Stan Lee 
uh, contributed. This is not me. I am not saying this. I am reading this to you from the Woodwork Gazette, where Wally asserted this in his, they call grizzled, editorial. Wally was sucking it up, according to him, carrying on, and he didn't believe he had very many options at the time. Uh, in Daredevil 8, he gives you the stilt man and uh, basically claims that he created the stilt man. Uh, 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 you know, envisioning the radar vision. Uh, and what is underscored here is how beautifully he's drawing this book. He's a beautiful, clean, pretty artist. Um, and, uh, and, and again, I've sometimes used Terry Austin. I, I describe him as crisp and clean and precise with his crispy inks. Uh, Wallywood is lush, a soft, but confident, strong, uh, brush line feathering, very pretty faces. At, the, in, at his EC Comics work, he had more what I would call more rendering. This kind of stuff that you would identify with a guy like Bernie Wrightson, but the material, the horror material, the sci-fi material demanded that. Uh, on he, This is a more kind of a more scaled back commercial, more basic Wally Wood, but it's still very pretty, very, very appealing, very commercial. Um, so, so, uh, and Wallywood was fast. Everybody in the industry would say the reason he had kind of built the legend for himself was that he was a proven speed demon. Uh, so issue nine, he believes that he he asserts that he wrote. And then in issue by issue 10, he has challenged uh, Stan that he should be credited as the writer of this book. And um, he, you know, gets that credit. And um, Stan would go on issue 10 and credit Wally Wood as the writer, as well as drawing the story. And, uh, but the way Stan did it, uh, you know, agitated him as we've covered it said on the splash page, Wally Wood has always wanted to try his hand at writing a story as well as drawing it. And the big hearted Stan who needed the rest anyway said, okay, so what follows next is anybody's guess. You may like it or not, but you can be sure of this. It's going to be different. It's not the most gracious announcement I've ever seen, but there's another caption box at the end of the story that might give further insight, uh, you know, to why Stan had the tone that he did. So uh, after, you know, really lobbying to be given with his proper credit uh, and and the way that it was rolled out, Wally decided, I'm leaving and I'm not going to tell you how the story ends. So he's, he's pissed. And, uh, and again... Wally, according to Stan, you know, left poor Stan to figure out this mystery uh, of who the organizer is. Issue 10 is a fine comic book. It's a, it's a, it's a good comic. You would never know the, the, the conditions that it was, you know, you know, forged in with all the conflict, um, unless it was brought to the fore by the blurbs and the letter column and all the innuendo and the undercutting. And again, Stan has the microphone. He is the editor in chief. He uh, has family ties uh, to the entire publishing so, so Stan is a very powerful guy, and I think he was asserting and maybe setting an example. Maybe these are my these these are my observations. Uh, long story short, uh, you know, Wally would uh, his 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 uh, his interview with uh, with Mark Evanier. Here is what he asserts. Okay, so he is interviewing with um, with uh, Mark Evanier. 
and In the Life Legend of Wally Wood, edited by Bob Stewart and Michael Catron, J. Michael Catron. This interview with Michael, with Mark Evanier is in there, and Wally Wood, these are his words, I'm about to read Wally Wood, says, I enjoyed working with Stan Lee on Daredevil, but for one thing, I had to make up the whole story. He was being paid for writing the stories, and I was being paid for drawing the stories, but he didn't have any ideas. I'd go in for a plotting session, and we'd just stare at each other until I told Stan a storyline. I felt like I was writing the book, but was not being paid to write the book. So those are Wally Ward's exact words. Mark Evanier, interviewing him, says, You did write one issue, as I recall. Wally Wood responds, One, yes, Daredevil 10. I persuaded him to let me write one by myself since I was already doing 99% of the writing already. I wrote it. I handed it in. He said it was hopeless. He said he'd have to rewrite all of it and write the next issue as well. Well, I said I couldn't contribute to the storylines unless I was getting paid for writing them. Stan said he'd look into it, but after that, he only had inking assignments for me available at Marvel. I was no longer penciling the book. Uh, when Daredevil number 10 was published, Stan changed five words. Exactly. Less than any editor would usually change. And for me, that was the last straw. These are Wally Wood's words. Uh, of course, there is all sorts of, again, this just feeds uh, into the multiple uh, assertions that Stan was uh, letting his artists come up with everything and then putting his name on it. And that makes me uncomfortable to tell you, but it is out there. There is There are entire books devoted to this. This particular episode is a feud. It is a feud we are examining in great, great lengths here. Um, And, and uh, the thing is that eventually Wally was um, offered uh, uh, by a rival publisher, to come and create the Thunder Agents. And I'm telling you, when I first saw the Thunder Agents as a kid, I flipped out. I absolutely flipped out. The Thunder, the Thunder Agents, uh, which would, would be which would be published under Tower, if I if I recall correctly, Tower Comics. I need to um, uh, uh, absolutely get straight on that. I believe it was somebody that was associated with Archie Comics that wanted to woo Wally Wood away. And uh, um, yes, a former Archie Comics editor named Harry Shorten approached Wally Wood and had discussed with him a new venture. And uh, Tower Publications had been publishing science fiction comic books. And um, so, so they were able to lure Wally away when he was at the height of of uh, of his tension with Stan, and so in 1965, Thunder Agents Number One uh, launched, and Wally tried to get a bunch of his friends, Al Williamson, Reed Crandall, to help out. His own wife would supply colors. Wally created the Thunder Agents, uh, No Man, Menthor, Dynamo. He soon was joined by Gil Kane, Steve Ditko, George Tuska, many many more. Thunder Agents didn't last very long because people thought the stories were dull. So, uh, maybe it was Stan that had the secret sauce. But, uh, you know, um, bottom line, it was uh, it was uh, a devastating um, c- 
kind of uh, falling out between the two men. And and shortly after, Steve Ditko left. And then, as we know, uh, about five years later, Jack Kirby left. And and so these original, the, these early uh, collaborators with Stan all kind of throw the same uh, shade. I know for a fact that Steve Ditko is a very uh, 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 isolated individual and he did not hang out and, and, um, share much life experience with Jack Kirby, especially Jack fled to California, uh, in the early seventies and, uh, you know, uh, late sixties, early seventies. And, and, uh, and Steve Ditko, I mean, if you start the clock on Kirby and Ditko's output in just 1970, both gentlemen, Steve Ditko and Kirby, these guys who gave you, and I knew whenever I got their books, these are the guys that gave us Fantastic Four, they gave us X-Men, they gave us Spider-Man, they gave us Doctor Strange, they gave us Hulk, so many. And yet they didn't stop working. Steve Ditko would go back, he would go to DC, then he would come back to Marvel in the late 70s, early 80s. He would bounce all over the place. He would, he did work for Charlton Comics, created seminal characters from them, many of whom were used were inspiring to the characters of the Watchmen. But Wally would... Uh, would um, uh, just his impact on the character in a brief time uh, has resonated for years, so much so that I read you giants in the comics industry, you know, who believe that what he did and how he did it and the style that he brought and the influence that, that he is deserving alongside of the creators of Daredevil as being someone who should share in the recognition given that he changed the look, the look. And what do we talk about? We talk about visuals. Boba Fett is a visual. The Batman is a visual. Okay. Snake Eyes is the most popular G.I. Joe member for a reason. He's a visual. Deadpool, powerful visual. Venom, powerful visual. Spider-Man, powerful visual. Without visuals, we aren't having these discussions. And uh, changing Daredevil, getting him out of that yellow and red kind of imbalanced costume, making him all red. Uh, uh, just all of the different aspects and, and more the more groundedness and the stability that he brought the book, the, the radar sense. Um, look, and the fact that he is claiming that he wrote these, char- these stories and that Stan was begrudgingly willing to give him the money for that and then begrudgingly gave him one credit and then kind of punitively, according to Hollywood, not being asked to do anything but ink beyond that. Wally Wood, his influence is in Dave Stevens, who is also not with us, but created the Rocketeer. Dave Stevens, you don't get to Dave Stevens and you don't see that art style without seeing it through a Wally Wood lens. Jerry Ordway, possibly the most prolific of all the Wally Wood kind of influencers. Um, uh, you know, people who have been influenced by him. Gene Day, another guy who passed, but in the 80s, very much Wally Wood influenced. He had a huge influence. The reason you haven't heard him is because he passed away. And he passed away so long ago, and his name isn't uh, reverberated. Uh, it isn't spoken of often enough. Uh, I myself have wanted to dance with the Thunder Agents, except that some of my licensed um, experiences lately have, have bitten me to the point where I have shied away from that. Sometimes you go and you say, well, maybe a cover for the Thunder Agents was all that I was meant to do. Uh, now, my work on Snake Eyes, G.I. Joe, was one of the best experiences in comic books, period, ever, that I've ever had. Um not just licensing, comic books. Hasbro, IDW were fantastic to me. I am so thrilled with that product, what came out. 
The Snake Eyes Dead Game, Dead Game trade paperback is on its way to you for the holidays. I hope you guys dig it. But anyway, that's a feud. And that's a feud. That, that feud made it into splash pages, into letters columns. I'm surprised it wasn't on the cover. But that's what we do here at the Comic Book Feuds. We, we air it all out. Stan, I have no comment from Stan. Stan became really more... He, he was challenged by Ditko and Kirby and they kind of became the primary uh, opponents to him. And, and, and Wally, uh, uh, you know, uh, his grievances were kind of left in the past, but they're real. And, and, and the blurbs, the letter column insults, the all of the poor Stan having to carry water for, I mean, you can read in, in, into those blurbs what they mean. So uh, I can only imagine someone doing that today. And, and the immediate storm that would be set off on social media across all the platforms. There'd be TikTok videos, there'd be YouTubes, there'd be Instagram posts, there'd be Twitter, you know, tweets, Facebook. Crazy. Comic book feuds. Stan Lee versus Wally Wood. You decide. There it is. That's how it all went down. And, and, and Daredevil, I mean, I guess really the phenomenon is how influential that Wally was on the book with only a few issues. I mean, that really is kind of the tail of the tape. Um, this is the time of the show as we wrap because, um, uh, you know, the uh, <laughs> we, we have, um, boy, we have shared a lot. We have shared a lot. And, and today was a, a lot of fun. And I'm so excited that you guys were, um, were able to come along for this ride and, and another feud. I mean, comic books, woo, so many feuds, so many feuds. Um, so anyway, brought the receipts, uh, Mark Evanier's interview. I gave you the book. Um, I, 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 I read from you the blog, the actual excerpts from the letters columns. Um, so much of everything else I shared to you is just stuff I've posted myself in different Facebook groups. And, uh, anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. Th th at the end of this show, I read your reviews that you guys leave for me. And we need them. We need your reviews, your five stars, your recommendations, your subscriptions, your word of mouth. Thank you so much for all that you do for the show. I appreciate it so, so much. This is a review from Hurricane Man. Let's see. Does Hurricane Man sign his real name here at the end? Because so often, no. Uh, okay. So it says, and this is a long one, but if you're going to write me something this long, I'm going to read it something this long. I am Spartacus. This reads five stars. Thank you. Who cares what Rob Liefeld has to say? Surprisingly, I do. This is what Hurricane Man is writing. I'm not sure why I first decided to give Rob observations a listen. All I can say is I'm so happy that I did. It turns out that Rob and I, and probably a lot of you who are hearing this, have so much more in common than I could have ever possibly imagined. Despite growing up on opposite sides of the country, Rob, Rob grew up on the West Coast in Cali, and I grew up on the East Coast in Florida. I feel like Rob and I were separated at birth. Rob is 54. I am 55. Rob is the son of a pastor. I grew up attending a private Christian school. Everything I loved and lived for in my adult, I'm sorry, everything I loved and lived for in my childhood. And as I grew into an adult, Rob loved too. The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, Battlestar Galactica, both original and reimagined. Note, please do a full episode on the reimagined BSG. Micronaut, Shogun Warriors, Rom, Godzilla, the spinner racks at the corner drugstore, Saturday morning cartoons, Friday night and Saturday afternoon horror and sci-fi movies on TV. Star Wars, Starlog Magazine, Kenner and Mego Toys, Origins of Marvel Comics, Son of Origins, Bring on the Bad Guys, the Superhero Women. These are the Fireside books. I did an entire um, episode on the Fireside books. 
He, he continues, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, Underground Comics, Chick, Bible, Comic Tracks, Frank Miller, Alan Moore, John Byrne, the MCU, Zack Snyder, Original Comic Book Artwork, Convention Anecdotes. Rob cut his teeth on and spent his formative years reading and watching and playing with the same comic books, movies, and toys that I and I'm sure many of you did in your childhood. He still shares that same wonder and reverence and has the deep connection that we all feel with these wonderful memories. The topics he chooses are familiar and listening to the podcast is like spending time with the very best friend you grew up with. Rob's observation also addresses topics I never realized that I needed to know about, but I absolutely do. The feuds. Oh, the feuds. <laughs> The true origin of Image Comics, the inner workings of the comic book business, behind the scenes of the movie business, the real story behind Heroes Reborn, the impressions, FUD! This is a macho show. Rob delivers Rob's observations reliably and with humor and exuberance and passion and that special sauce of self-depreciation and sprinkling of self-confident acerbic wit. I simply cannot say enough great things about this show. If you grew up loving comics and reading and watching sci-fi and superhero movies and shows, you have to listen to this podcast. If you were one of the nerds who drew pictures in class and collected trading cards and play acted that you were Han Solo in your backyard, you have to listen to this podcast. Rob, Rob has become my ride or die. I listen to Rob's observations whenever I have a road trip and even on my drive to and from work. Rob is me. I am Rob. We are all Rob. Wow. Thank you. Hurricane Man, thank you for this I Am Spartacus five-star review. That is the um, among the nicest, kindest, most energetic, most effusive, um, most complimentary review I have ever received. I thank you so very much. Thank you for sharing that. I will read your review as well. You have just to post one, to share one, to share with the world how much you're digging this show, and I will eventually read it on this broadcast, these episodes. Thank you, Hurricane Man. Thank you, all of you who make up the audience of the show for tuning in and discussing. Today, we did comic book feuds. Wally Wood versus Stan Lee. Daredevil. Awesome. Incredible. Incredible, the stuff that this creates. Again, the aftermath is Wood leaving brought John Romita Sr. onto the book, who would then launch after a very polished Daredevil run into a very important Spider-Man run following the huge footsteps of Steve Ditko in the process. So here you go. I am all over social media. I'm on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld, full name, but it has a blue check. Robert Liefeld, full name on Twitter. On Instagram, I'm at Rob Liefeld, blue check. I'm all over Facebook. I'm in so many different groups. I'm all over the platform. You can always find me. You can always reach out to me. I love talking to you guys. I love the back and forth. Thank you so much for all your enthusiasm, for um, all of your um, interactions that we share. I appreciate it. I look forward to it. This is the time of the show where you promise to me that you're going to take care of yourself, okay? And 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 I I'm, I believe, I, I take you at your word, you need to. Your mental health, your emotional health, everything. Make sure that you are looking out for you and your family and taking care of yourself. And you are going to stay safe. That's 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 the bottom line. Stay safe. And 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 we will absolutely positively 100% Talk again real soon.